0: Hello and welcome to another episode of BrainCast. Today I interviewed Majid Hefez Parast, a professor of molecular neuroscience that studies motor neuron disease, also known as ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. Specifically, Majid studies changes in patients' brains at the molecular level, including defects in how cargo is transported along neuron axons. Today I spoke to him about this very important work and about how being an academic has changed in his nearly 20 years here at the University of Sussex. How did you first become interested in neurocytes and specifically ALS or motor neuron? Also, is there is there do you have a preferred name you should use because ALS has a lot of amyotrophic lateral sclerosis? Yeah, has a lot of uh, sort of names which would which would you use to be ALS? I suppose. Yeah.
1: Hello. Um, um, thank you for giving me the opportunity to uh, talk about my research and uh, what we do here in Sussex. Well. Amitroferrilateral sclerosis is the uh, general name, uh, which most people in the world would uh, recognize. Um, it, in the UK it's uh, called motor neuron disease as well, MND. Um, and in the US, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, because Lou Gehrig was a uh, baseball player who, unfortunately, died of this um, condition. So, um, MND, ALS is fine. Uh, most people in the UK use MND, uh, but that's the name mm-hmm. they use. Um, and why I became interested in ALS, uh, um, I, I guess I always I wanted to really understand the uh, neurodegenerative diseases better. Um, I went to a lecture in the late 90s on uh, MND. Mm-hmm and uh, realized how little we know about ALS-MND um, and the devastating impact it has on people with MND and also their families. Okay. So that the passion basically started there and I thought I, I would like to use my skills to do my research and spend time on understanding the molecular and cellular based of and the MND ALS. Um, that's, that's how it started. Uh, really.
0: So, it's part of the part of the attraction of it was, was how little was known. It's kind of like a
1: that's right. Yes. Um, as you know, generally neurodegenerative diseases, uh, um, the they the answer is quite late generally in, in life, and um, people are okay for decades, and all of a sudden um, some neurons start um, generating and. Um, that's uh, it's difficult to, to deal with um, uh, anything with neurons, nerves, and um, brain and spinal cord once they develop. That that's difficult to to get access to them. Mm-hmm. So that 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 was mainly the the, the reason I got into um, uh, research on, on this
0: condition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So your interested in the molecular and cellular kind of side that informed I assume that informed what you did for your PhD. Would you mind? So, just briefly outline what you what you did in your PhD.
1: Sure. Um, so, my PhD was on uh, DNA repair, which is more cancer related. Um, I was uh, working on identifying or mapping a gene that uh, gave resistance to um, uh, uh, ionizing radiation, you know, like extracts. and with cancer cells. If uh, if, you know, if one of the um, Approaches are for therapy or to um, to radia- irradiation and um, use X-rays, for instance, to to kill cancer cells. And they, they, they some of them become resistant. To that. So I was working on that um, project to find the gene that gives this uh, resistance to ionizing radiation. Um, for that, uh, we had to use uh, various molecular, um, like molecular genetics, molecular biology techniques to to. To map the gene and identify the gene, so um, those skills in mapping genes and uh, gene cloning and identifying genes that are causing a phenotype, those skills that I had then um, helped me with my research into neurodegenerative diseases. I said, with uh, ALS, nothing really, not much really was known at the time. There was only one gene, uh, superoxide mutase one that had been re- identified to be associated with, with uh, ALS-MND. Um, we knew, we know that uh, around 10% of uh, these um, ALS cases are familial, but 90% are non-familial, rarely, they don't run in families. But um, there were other genes that um, needed to be identified, and my skills and training in gene hunting helped me and encouraged me to get into the uh, field of ALS and MD after that, yeah.
0: So even though you didn't uh, necessarily get a PhD in something sort of directly related to your interests, it actually ended up proving really useful in gene hunting? Absolutely,
1: absolutely, yeah. With yeah. PhD, is basically, you basically know, been trained to, be, to think and work like a scientist, mm. and the skills that you learn there, they can be applicable in many fields that mm-hmm. you can use yeah.
0: Well, I suppose that's quite reassuring to people who end up doing PhDs and things not quite aligned directly with what what they're interested in.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I yeah. mean, I mean, scientists even when they start working on research in their early career, you end up doing something quite different from what they started. It's Just uh, where your interest takes you, you mm-hmm. go follow it, follow mm-hmm. your passion. I mm-hmm. interest. yeah.
0: So, uh, related to that, was was there any specific part of your PhD that you found especially challenging? Was there anything that you found was more difficult than you expected, perhaps?
1: The main thing was the time, the short time is very short, mm-hmm. <laughs> although it's three years, four years, sometimes uh, if you have uh, one of these programmes like the Sussex Neuroscience programme, but still it is short. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Uh, the training you need to get and all the uh, aspects of research to get to uh, going and running. Um, it's really the time pressure that uh, one needs to be aware of and uh, use the time efficiently. So that was stressful. And the other stress was the that we were competing with another group oh, <laughs> right. on the same project. So. Um, uh, that was again stress that really put a lot of pressure on mm-hmm. getting things done and making sure that uh, all is uh, done correctly and uh, troubleshoot. You have to troubleshoot uh, in any project. that there are Problems that you need to sort out. Um, so yeah, that that was it. Time and uh, the competition. <laughs>
0: mm. Would you say that that competition helped you, or is it more of a where do you sort of fall on that side? Do you think it helped that there was a competition? It sort of pressured you to to you know, strive to do better, or was it more of a overly stressful kind of drawback?
1: It, it helped me. It, it helped. Uh, obviously, it's stressful. Um, I spent weekends in the lab, hard working till late night in the lab, working on counting chromosomes and <laughs> um, doing experiments um, and looking off the cells, basically, tissue culture, uh, cell culture. So, um, but it helped. And um, I was very lucky as well. It's always if you, something for luck. Um, so we managed to map the gene to the correct part of our chromosome, two, to the right chromosome, and then uh, went to the, a conference in the U.S. and um, presented my data. And there are people there who knew about the other competing lab there. They said, well, they mapped it to another region, and I confidently said, well, they mapped it, but there is another, they had mapped it to another chromosome, but there was a bit of chromosome 2 still in that cell line that mm-hmm. they had." Um, I said, well, that bit of chromosome 2 is where the genes mm-hmm. was, <laughs> and that we are correct. And it turned out to be the, the right thing. We were correct. Nice. Yeah. was well, yeah, really quite complicated. Especially in front of all these experts that have uh, many years of experience, yeah. that was... Nice to be confident and say, "Yeah, this is this is what we think, and this is the real one." Mm-hmm. Tell them the correct, the correct uh, data.
0: Nice, mm-hmm. yeah. So, your if you were to give a piece of advice to a, to a prospective PhD student, would it be about time management? You think maybe?
1: Yes, time man- management and perseverance, and uh, yeah, it, it pays off. Mm-hmm. Um, we might get negative data. We all get negative data, uh, but it's still results. So. Mm-hmm. That means that if you have, you are telling others not to follow this. So you're basically teaching others not to do that. So this is good. Mm -hmm. Also, obviously, positive data is always pleasing and uh, uh, more encouraging, but uh, yeah, time management and perseverance. Mm -hmm.
0: Right. So after your PhD, you obviously started as a a postdoc and sort of entered research in that kind of setting. Was there anything? Uh, that surprised you when you started as a postdoc? Was anything really stuck out differently from your PhD in terms of the day-to-day sort of research?
1: Yes, uh, it was the kind of more freedom that you have uh, because then you're, you're supposed to be basically planning your own work and uh, um, see ahead. Uh, so the independence was surprising. Uh, it was pleasant, it was a pleasant surprise. Mm. Uh, but with that comes responsibility because again, we're doing a post like these uh, contracts are usually three years. <laughs> again, mm-hmm. time is uh, very precious and uh, with that you will need to use the time wisely and uh, generate data for publications because with, without publication it's very difficult to continue. Uh, so that, that, that was it the independence and also the, um, the responsibility. To, to do well, uh, and again, it was a good thing to, to have because that made me to to, up, to put my first grant application to as a postdoc, uh, which was successful, so it was a small one, but still uh, with that, I managed to employ a, a technician to help me with my work for two years. Um, so it was kind of substantially small <laughs> uh, grant, and uh, it was really pleasing to to have that, that success, and that gave me confidence to for future work.
0: Right. Nice. Yeah. Okay. So um, sort of so that's sort of moving forwards into what you do now. Um, would you mind giving us a kind of a brief overview, generally, of, of what you're working on at the moment?
1: Yeah. So um, the are different aspects of um, research that we are, we are carrying on in the lab now uh, neuron disease is a more general name uh, as well I know it suggested that it's um, people use it for ALS but it's a group of diseases that are uh, called motor neuron diseases uh, because they affect the uh, motor neurons uh, some of them are childhood uh, like Spinal muscular atrophy, which is a, which is a genetic disease and uh, affects infants, um, and there is another kind of uh, childhood motor neuron disease, uh, SMA, LED is called. Um, it's it's caused by mutations in the gene dynein uh, that causes uh, uh, cause for a component of cytoplasmic dynein, and dynein is a molecular machine, basically. That uh, moves along the microtubules and carries uh, cargo from the end of the axons to the uh, cell body. Uh, So, mutations in this gene uh, that they cause childhood anemia. That's one part of the work that we do. Um, And axonal transport, as you can imagine, is quite important for uh, long axons of motor neurons and any neuron. And it is impaired in other. Conditions like ALS, as well as um, Parkinson's, for instance, Alzheimer's disease, for instance. So it's a fundamental uh, process that uh, needs uh, integrity. Um, So that's one aspect of the work that we do, um, and looking at uh, impacts of axonal transport defects on motor neurons and how um, we can alleviate these problems if there are problems. the other work that we are doing is finding biomarkers for, for ALS. Uh, I mentioned that ALS is a late-onset disease um, um, and by the time it shows the symptoms, uh, it's quite late really and it takes time to diagnose us actually because clinicians will have to eliminate other conditions uh, to make sure that it's ALS actually. Um, so it would be good to have a, a marker that could tell us this is uh, ALS or mm-hmm. not. Uh, so we are looking at uh, blood, uh, blood samples of many patients and controls um, to, to find out what changes in terms of non-coding RNAs in the blood, like microRNAs for instance. Um, and we have some candidates that they either go up, some of them, some of them go down, and we are using this um, with, with the help from machine learning. To determine if we can come up with uh, a signature biomarker that can tell us that this is ALS because uh, microRNA A, A, B, C have gone up, F, G, H have gone down in the combination, and um, that would be really useful for clinicians uh, to uh, determine that it's ALS. Also for therapy, because the sooner we diagnose the condition, the the better we can deal with it. Uh, the other advantage would be that, uh, you know, with uh, drug discoveries and uh, uh, clinical trials, uh, it would be good to have something that could tell us if this drug is working mm-hmm. at the molecular level. Mm-hmm. So you administer a drug and then look at this biomarker, is it going up or down? Is it changing the that, dose that levels? and that we know that this drug is doing something that is in the right direction. Um, so that is what we are doing and uh, we are collaborating with clinicians for that you know, which is really exciting and it's going well.
0: Yeah nice, I, I hadn't actually um, considered the prospect of biomarkers sort of beyond diagnosis but actually you're right I mean, it's a very useful tool for seeing the disease progression which obviously is important in a new. Uh, a neurodegenerative disease where they progress sort of constantly Um, so it's handy to be able to to watch that. Um, Also it must be exciting to be able to use all these new things like I mean deep um, sort of neural network deep learning technology is is relatively new um, and that must be an exciting development to be able to use in your research.
1: Absolutely yeah yeah this is really we couldn't do without because it becomes very complex uh, you have to uh, include the demography of the, pay, uh, the people, the samples as well. So, the age, and, uh, when when the disease onset was, and all that com- uh, different vari- variations and uh, factors that uh, they need to come together, as well as the levels of macro or biomarkers. So, uh, without machine learning and uh, AI, we couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and luckily, there are. Good experts uh, that could help us. I'm, I'm not an expert in that area, but there are experts in that uh, that could help us with that. And my my uh, uh, researcher in the lab, Greg Julian, he's is really very good with that as well. So uh, it's it's exciting uh, to to be in the time that we can use this technology and this knowledge.
0: Mm, the sort of the age of sort of big data in life science, right? now it's all just about dealing with it, you know, using software because we, we can produce so much information but it's actually now just sort of figuring out what it all means.
1: Absolutely, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is really exciting. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So sort of semi related, if you had ten times the budget you have now, um, what do you think you would spend it on? What what things would you do differently perhaps in your in your work, or what what would be priorities for you to 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 put some money behind?
1: Yes, yeah, so uh, two two things I would consider. Uh, one is the biomarker work. Uh, with that, uh, we need more samples um, because the the more the samples, the, the more likely that we um, can get uh, valid biomarkers uh, for the condition. So, uh, and you know, clinicians have to really work hard to get the samples and. People with MND and their, their relatives are really, really um, amazing in donating these samples. We couldn't really find uh, them enough for donating those samples. Um, so and that is costly, getting this done and getting samples. And so that's one thing that uh, set up a system, or a uh, biobank, that we could use to, uh, to get more samples uh, for, for our research and as well as for others to use. The other aspect would be the, uh, um, you know, neurons, they're not viable. They're not like fibroblasts that you can take a biopsy from a a new brain and um, there are some that you can generate regenerate. But um, with people with MND, for instance, uh, we can't do biopsies and uh, culture those uh, to understand the condition. Um, And for that, uh, The only way to really get samples from patients uh, is to reprogram fibroblasts, uh, induced pluripotent stem cell technology that uh, was developed a few years ago. So you get fibroblasts and then reprogram them to stem cells to become stem cells, and then you can uh, convert them to motor neurons. Um, So there are this is very exciting because then you can see in that motor uh, neuron from the patient what, what the cellular processes are, what are, what are the defects and what, 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 how we can deal with that. Um, so there are uh, variations, genetic variations in, in um, people with ALS um, that they might be contributing to the condition, to the disease because as I said, uh, ALS is mainly sporadic, it's not genetic. So it's a combination of several genes and plus lifestyle and all that. Um, so I would like to generate using CRISPR technology, genome gene- editing technology as well, uh, and more uh, IPS cells to generate more c- cellular models for the, for the condition for, for ALS. And therefore, and use those to see which one of these changes um, are contributing, are likely to be contributing to the answer the of the disease. So these are the things that I would I uh, use. Now.
0: Yeah, I had no idea actually thinking about it. It makes sense that you can't collect neurons and, and study them because they're not viable. So you have to go through all those steps of reprogramming the cells, which in itself is, is fascinating, but also must really bottleneck how much work you can do um, with
1: the, with the sort of samples that you have and the, the time that you have as well. Absolutely. That's the challenge with, ne- with the nervous system. It's, uh, you can't touch it, basically. <laughs> um, and when things go wrong, it's very really difficult to, um, to tackle it at, at this stage. So hopefully we can um, come up with new ways of uh, ch- um, uh, treating the, uh, people
0: with uh, conditions. So. so you're talking about um, collecting samples from from uh, ALS patients um is there do you collaborate with charities in that respect or is it with healthcare facilities or how does that how does that work necessarily
1: yes so with the uh, and ND, it's uh, uh, the charity main charity in the UK is uh, one of the names in the world, is the Multinearum Disease Association um, who have been funding us in the last few years generously. uh, uh, So they provide the funding and then we collaborate with clinicians uh, uh, with uh, my dear colleague uh, Professor Nigel Lee in BSMS BSMS, and uh, others, uh, uh, Martin Turner, and Oxford and um, Andrea Malaspina in, uh, in uh, UCL, so we are working with these clinicians and they generously have um, provided this, the samples uh, for us to, to use, um, I must mention, uh, must mention also um, our colleagues in uh, Germany who have been uh, helping us with that, um, also Albert Rudolph and uh, uh, his colleagues, they have genera- uh, provided samples for us as well.
0: So, if there was more awareness of of, of ALS or MND, or there was more sort of awareness of the work that you do, um, do you think that would allow you to collect more samples? Do you think that's a, do you think, or to put it another way, do you ever wish that there was more sort of awareness about the work that you do, uh, or about MND generally, Um, and, and if so, is there a way? You think that the right way to go about that, sort of letting more people know about it, is there a, is there a strategy for that? Do you think?
1: Yes, uh, it would really help uh, if people know more about it. And uh, again, MND Association have been really uh, are very proactive in that, in uh, raising awareness. Um, there was, for instance, last year we had the Brighton Walk, uh, so we walked along Brighton Beach and uh, basically with t-shirts and. Well, uh, MND research and uh, you're collecting uh, donations um, with people from the MND uh, branch in, in Sussex. So there are very hard work- working people in that area working on raising awareness and we need more. Um, and um, as I said for samples, is people with MND generously give, give samples, uh, donate samples, but we also need controls. People who don't have MND, or people with other conditions that we can distinguish, use as controls again that we can distinguish those from MND. So yeah, I mean, awareness is really helps a lot to uh, to to push the um, our fight against this condition. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. So sort of to shift gears somewhat, has anything. What, what do you think has fundamentally changed about how you do your work? I mean, you've been a scientist for a number of years now, you know, sort of a long career. Has anything really... Fun, what, what would you say is the main thing that's sort of fundamentally changed about how you do research compared to when you started?
1: I think the biggest impact has come from the, uh, the human genome sequence because with that, we have... It's given us so much knowledge and power to really uh, analyze the genomes of uh, people, and one of the projects at that the that moment is going on is uh, called uh, Project Mind, uh, and they are sequencing basically thousands of uh, ALS cases and you know, controls. Um, and those variations that I mentioned, I can see it in, from that database, that I can see that there are um, variations in the genome, genes, that I'm interested in, that uh, I would say, well, they are quite um, harmful. But obviously, these people have been, I've had have that for decades. And one question is, are these variations contributing to the condition that uh, I exist? Uh, So. With with the human genome sequence being, becoming available and the technology that it brought, it really changed the it, 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 um, the field and speed things up. I spent uh, if, when I was in my postdoc, um, the human genome sequence and the mouse genome sequence, the projects were on the way, but to identify the gene that was causing the phenotype that I was interested in. Um, it took three years, and um, one post, like, two PhD students. The same thing can be done in a few months now. Wow. X, with one person. Wow. So that, that's, that's, that's the scale, and um, sequencing thousands of genomes in a short period of time that is very amazing obviously with that. Uh, Another technology that is helping now is AI and uh, machine learning that's really making this field very, very exciting.
0: So fundamentally for for you, it would be um, the sort of bioinformatics and genetics uh, picking up pace to such a radical degree. You'd say that's probably the main thing that's changed the field for you. Yes, yeah. I I can see that. I mean, that's such a profound change of speed um, that, yeah, it would make sense that that would enable you to do so much more yeah